Hello, I'm Ryan Tate, and welcome to History of the Pacific Northwest, Episode 15, Voyage of the Columbia, Part 6. We're back with the final episode on Columbia's expedition to the Northwest. When last we left Robert Gray, he had destroyed the Tlayahualt village of Opitsat. Gray believed Chief Wiccanish had organized a raid against his fort in a bid to seize both of Gray's ships. Gray found out about the raid, and it was called off when it became clear that the Americans were on guard and at the ready. Still, Robert Gray would not forgive Wiccanish and sought a swift and devastating revenge. Gray was now off to begin trading season anew. The young Robert Haswell was captain of the newly christened sloop Adventure. Haswell was to take his ship north and Gray would take his ship south towards the mainland. Gray would reach the coast of modern-day British Columbia and continue south trailing along the coast of what is now Washington and Oregon. Gray kept a steady pace as he traded along the coast. As always, he never lingered anywhere for an extended period of time. His restlessness and impatience would consistently get the better of him, causing him to miss out on a great deal of sea otter pelts. Along the Washington coast, at the bottom of the Olympic Peninsula, Gray pushed his way into an inlet that opened up into a large bay. This would one day be referred to as Gray's Harbor. At the east side of the bay is where modern-day Aberdeen, Washington is. Gray's Harbor is the drainage point of the Chehalis River. This land was the ancestral home of the Chehalis people, which Gray met and traded with. There are oral traditions about Robert Gray, passed down by the Chehalis, which thankfully survive to this day. The Chehalis, like most indigenous North Americans, had never seen a white person before. The story speaks of strangers with white skin and beards on a massive canoe. Some believe that the ship was carrying the spirit Doquibuttle. From what I can find, Doquibuttle was a spirit of disease or pestilence, not an exciting spirit to see coming at you over the horizon. In preparation, the Chehalis painted their faces and rowed out to the ship in their canoes. When they got closer, they saw the bearded white men on the vessel. The white men were signaling for the Chehalis to wash their faces, and when they did, they were offered trade goods. They soon realized that these were in fact people, strangers who looked different from them. Gray and his crew took their usual approach of trading, offering wares in exchange for furs and pelts. Gray sold firearms to the Chehalis people, but no ammunition. He convinced them that the guns they possessed were merely designed to make loud noises. This dishonesty on Gray's part was unlike anything he had done while trading. It is possible that he tried to deceive the indigenous people of Vancouver Island, but failed. In any case, his time in Gray's Harbor did not remain peaceful. One night, the Columbia was approached at night by many canoes. Most likely this was a different group than the one Gray had traded with. Believing the men in the canoes to have hostile intentions, Gray attempted to send them away with several warning shots fired from muskets and cannons. However, the Chehalis would not be dissuaded. Gray ordered a cannon loaded with grape shot be fired at one of the canoes. Grape shot was a grouping of iron balls loaded into a cannon. It is not unlike a modern-day frag grenade. It is essentially the same idea. The cannon fires and separates the iron balls as they are shot at the enemy. The grape shot shredded the canoe, 
and likely killed everyone on board. An estimate of 10 to 20 in total is probably accurate. John Boyd wrote of the incident in his journal. He was remorseful and said he felt sad to have killed so many people. However, he believed that the Columbia's crew had to prioritize their own safety in the face of potential danger. Gray left the harbor and continued on his way south down the coast, where he would reach the mouth of the Columbia River. The Columbia is one of the largest rivers in North America. Its river basin is home to the largest salmon runs in the entire world. Every year, approximately 30 million salmon swim up the Columbia and its many tributaries. It is one of the most important waterways in the Pacific Northwest. Before we see Gray inside the river, let's look at some notable attempts to make it into the mouth of the Columbia. Spanish explorer Bruno de Ecita noticed the mouth of the Columbia in 1775. He was likely the first European explorer to discover the passage. Ezita thought of sailing inside, but due to scurvy and disease amongst his crew, he elected to continue onward without further investigation. Captain James Cook missed the river completely on his last voyage. Due to foggy weather, he was unable to see the coast. John Mears was the first to attempt to enter the Columbia River. The problem was the mouth of the Columbia has ever-shifting sandbars. The water level can get very low, and if a ship is not careful, they can run aground on the bars. Despite his effort, John Mears could not find a suitable entrance at any point across the Columbia's three-mile-wide mouth. In his displeasure at failure, he named the Northern Cape Cape Disappointment and continued onward. The name Cape Disappointment still stands to this day, and it is a state park on the Washington side of the Columbia River. George Vancouver, another British sailor, saw a possible entry into the Columbia River, but did not think it worth his time to explore the river. If George Vancouver had taken that turn, it potentially could have changed Pacific Northwest history. Robert Gray, like George Vancouver, was fortunate enough to see a passage through the shifting sandbars. He elected to take the chance and easily sailed into the Columbia River. On May 11, 1792, Robert Gray became the first sailor to navigate his way into the mighty river. It was a bit of skill and a lot of luck that the sandbars provided an opening for him. Not far up the river, the crew of the Columbia came in contact with the Chinook people who called this land their home. The Chinook were passionate traders and were thrilled to meet these new travelers. The Chinook were big on trade. In fact, every year they would travel to a massive festival on the Columbia River where many would meet together for celebrations, games, and trading. The chief of the Chinook was a man named Comcomly, who would become something of Chinook royalty. He will later meet Lewis and Clark and John Jacob Astor as more Americans make their way from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Comcomly welcomed Robert Gray and his crew. He was extremely friendly towards his guests. Many of the Columbia remarked on the hospitality of the Chinook people. More than one journal noted that they never stole a thing which was not a normal experience for the Americans in this part of the world. After some time with the Chinook, Gray explored up the Columbia River, but in short time turned around and returned to the Pacific to rendezvous with the adventure. Gray would never realize how important him sailing up the Columbia River would turn out to be. On his way back north, 
Gray traded and fought with many Native Americans. Almost every run-in would follow a similar pattern. Native Americans would get too close to the Columbia or show signs of hostility. Gray would order a warning shot to be fired, and then if they did not retreat, he would open fire on them. It seems like what happened to Robert Gray at Fort Defiance had changed the way he was perceiving the Native Americans of the Northwest. He was constantly on the defensive and afraid of danger at every encounter. There is no clear record of how many meetings became hostile, but it was undoubtedly more than a few of them. Up north, Columbia and the adventure met back up. Between Gray and Haswell, they had 700 sea otter pelts and 15,000 lesser skins. Lesser skins could have referred to anything from beaver, land otter, or other small animals. Not a bad haul in the season. Just when things were looking good though, Gray's reckless sailing finally caught up with him. The Columbia struck a rock that jutted out just below the water. The impact burst a hole in the Columbia's hull. Pumps were worked non-stop to keep the ship from sinking. Bilge pumps were like old well handles. Depending on the type of pump, it could be operated by one or several men. The constant up and down motion could get exhausting, so there had to be a constant rotation of sailors manning the pumps day and night. Gray figured he had no choice but to head to Nuka Sound and ask the Spanish for help in repairing his ship. This was a dangerous proposition. Remember, the Spanish see the Americas as rightfully theirs, and they were not keen on any other governments seeking to establish any kind of claim to the region. Gray was unable to reach Nootka Sound due to all the damage done to the Columbia and could only reach Clackwat Sound. He saw Chief Wiccanish there, which must have been an awkward meeting since he had destroyed his village the last time the two had seen each other. There is no record of their interactions though. While at Clackwat, a Spanish ship noticed Gray and came to investigate. The ship was captained by Juan Francisco de la Bodega y Cuadra. You may remember him from our episode on the Spanish exploration of the Northwest. Cuadra towed Gray to Friendly Cove, a settlement he had been overseeing in Nootka Sound. Under Cuadra's leadership, Friendly Cove had been transformed into a small settlement. It is recorded that there were 16 houses there with gardens and storehouses. Quadra had also developed excellent relations with Chief McQuinna. The two consistently had meals together at Friendly Cove. Quadra treated Gray's crew with great care, allowing them to eat and drink as much as they wanted while there. Speaking of eating and drinking, the Spanish were said to only use plates, cups, and cutlery that were made out of pure silver a testament to the wealth of the Spanish Empire at the time. The Spanish, the Americans, and the Nauchanoth people, including McQuinna, sat down together for meals many times at Friendly Cove. One can imagine the conversations and stories that were told by each of the different people sitting together at the same table. It would have been pretty cool to be a fly on the wall in that situation. With the Columbia repaired, Gray was getting ready to leave the Spanish settlement. It was here that he decided to sell the adventure to Quadra. Gray told Quadra that it was a high-quality ship, newly built in the Northwest, and the Spaniard was quite interested. Simultaneously, Gray was ensuring Mr. Hoskins, and therefore his benefactor, Joseph Burrell, that the adventure was a fine vessel, but not fit for the long ocean voyage to China. 
Gray probably foresaw some questions about him selling this brand new ship that he wanted to avoid. In any case, Quadra accepted Gray's offer and threw in an additional 72 sea otter pelts on top of the deal. With accounts settled and the trade season over, the Columbia set sail. They would stop at Hawaii first and then proceed to China. Once reaching Hawaii, something curious takes place. Atu, the young Hawaiian who dazzled Boston with his feather cloak and helmet and was nearly enticed to sell out Robert Gray and his crew to Wiccanish and the Tlayahualt, returned home to Hawaii and then disappeared from written history. We do not know if he stayed in Hawaii or if he elected to remain an American sailor. We know that he was reunited with his parents, and that is it. There is no trace or mention of Atu after that. Atu and his counterpart Opi were likely the first Hawaiians to circumnavigate the globe, though they are not remembered for this feat. With or without Atu, the Columbia sailed on to China and arrived in Canton early December 1792. Doing better this time, Gray managed to sell his furs and procure about $100,000 worth of Chinese goods for resale in Boston. It was time to go home. The crew was elated to be returning home. The Columbia was once again leaking though, and again, crews had to work constantly pumping water out of the hold day and night. Rounding Africa, the Columbia was running low on supplies. They stopped at the small British-held island of St. Helena, which was west of Africa. Unfortunately, St. Helena had experienced a drought and had very little on hand to help the passing ship. Gray had to make a difficult call. Rations were low, and he could either continue on to Boston with the crew on starvation rations, he could backtrack his journey, or he could sail for another colonial island in search of supplies. A strong northwest wind made his decision as it pushed Gray to head back for Boston. He reasoned that the winds were strong, and in the crew's excitement to be home, they would tolerate the low rations. This was a near-fatal mistake. Provisions ran out, and they were still several weeks away from Boston. It looked as if starving to death on the open sea was almost a certainty. As fate had it, the Columbia's crew spotted the ship and hailed them. When the two came in contact, it just so happened that the vessel they passed was a transport ship carrying a cargo of livestock. What luck. I do not know what the odds are of running into a ship carrying exactly what you need in the middle of the ocean is, but I imagine it's pretty low. After purchasing enough fresh meat to make it home, the Columbia continued on with little issue, save for the leak in the hull, which still required constant pumping. The Columbia came into Boston July 25, 1793. They were greeted by cannon salutes from the wharves, but Robert Gray would not find another hero's welcome like last time. His first voyage around the world was huge, but the second time it felt more like business as usual. From here, the story sort of just stops. Gray settled his accounts with Joseph Burrell and went on with his life. I know, not the type of ending you were expecting, right? Well, 
No one would place any significance on Gray's navigation of the Columbia River for quite some time. In fact, it wouldn't really be relevant for another near 50 years after the matter. This is what makes history strange sometimes. Significant people aren't always significant during their life. Sometimes it takes a while before anyone really cares about who you were. I would like to take some time and tie up a few loose ends of our story, though. We have had many characters in our history about the ship Columbia, and I fear that I probably did not do them all justice. I would like to take some time and revisit all the people I have talked about and fill you in on the remainder of their lives. We will end our story with a summary of our two captains of the Columbia, John Kendrick and Robert Gray. Yeah, don't you worry, we're not done with John Kendrick just yet. First, let's start with the Columbia itself. The Columbia is in some ways a character of the story. First captained by John Kendrick and then Robert Gray, it made it around the world twice and carried the first American to make that incredible feat in the age of sail. The Columbia River was first known as Columbia's River, which was named directly after the ship. However, after journeying so many miles and being pushed to its limits by Robert Gray, the Columbia was battered badly. It laid in the harbor, barely used, and in 1801, it was officially decommissioned and likely scrapped. It was recorded that excessive rot took its toll after the many improvised repairs. On to our human characters. First, we have Joseph Ingraham, who was the Columbia's first mate on its first voyage. Much to the anger of Burrell, Ingraham elected to return to Nootka Sound under a different benefactor. Burrell was so angry that he initially told Gray that he should not have any contact with Ingraham or help him in any way if they were to run into each other. Gray was cordial with his former first mate, though. Ingraham's voyage as Captain of the Hope was a failure, though. He made no profit from it, and afterwards elected to join the U.S. Navy. He served as a lieutenant for nearly eight years and fought in the quasi-war against France. In 1800, he was appointed captain of the USS Pickering and was on his way to the West Indies to rendezvous with Commodore Thomas Truxton. However, the Pickering was lost at sea and all hands disappeared without a trace. Ingraham was either 37 or 38 years old at the time. We are unsure of his exact date of birth or death. Next, we have Robert Haswell, who was a prominent character in both voyages. We wouldn't know a thing about the first voyage of the Columbia if not for the young man's journal. Haswell, on his first voyage, was nothing if not immature. He was hot-headed and arrogant. He barked orders at those below him, and was quick to write scathingly about his superior officers. He despised Kendrick, and even Gray got his fair share of negative remarks as well. I do believe that Haswell did grow, though. He was only 19 on the first voyage of the Columbia. Haswell did get to become a captain on the second voyage, where he took the sloop adventure on a successful trading run. Despite his flaws, he completed his mission. After many years at sea, Haswell seemed to grow tired of it. He once wrote to his sister that he hoped he could one day make enough money to buy a farm 
and live out his days on the quiet countryside growing crops. Ironic when I think of people in those times who probably dreamt of sailing to exotic places on the open sea, and Haswell was only thinking about leaving the sea behind for good. Perhaps two trips around the globe was all the adventure and excitement he needed. His dreams of a farm were not meant to be, and like Ingraham, he too enlisted in the U.S. Navy. Haswell also served as a lieutenant in the Quasi-War. In 1801, Haswell was given leave from the Navy to captain a trading vessel called Louisa. It was to sail for the Northwest, China, and India. Haswell's experience in the Northwest made him a prime candidate to lead the venture. However, the Louisa disappeared without a trace and was never heard from again. Robert Haswell was either 32 or 33 years old, as the exact date of his death is unknown. He had married in 1798 to Mary Cordes, the sister of one of his crewmates from the Columbia. Robert Haswell left behind a wife and two daughters to remember him. Joseph Burrell, the benefactor of the Columbia Expeditions, retired in 1793 and left his business to his son, Joseph Burrell Jr. Joseph Burrell Sr. retired to his country estate of Pleasant Hill, where he spent the rest of his life studying agriculture and horticulture. He did this for the next 11 years, and he died in 1804 at the age of either 64 or 65. John Hoskins, Joseph Burrell's trusted clerk, returned to his boss's employment when he got back to Boston. He continued working for the Burrell family for many years. Hoskins had ended his journal on the Columbia expedition mid-sentence, and we still do not know why. It is a curious anecdote of the Columbia's voyage. Hoskins was successful in creating one of the earliest maps of the northwest coast of America. It is by no means close to perfect, but impressive nonetheless. After returning to Boston, Hoskins got married and had two children. He continued to work in the business of maritime trade until his wife passed away in 1804. Grief-stricken, Hoskins permanently moved to Bordeaux, France. We know next to nothing about the remainder of his life. All we can say for certain is that he remarried and died near Paris in July of 1824 at the age of either 55 or 56. John Boyd, another of our sources for the second voyage of the Columbia, was one of the youngest officers to serve under Gray. Boyd had just turned 16 when the Columbia set sail from Boston. Upon returning to Boston, Boyd was hired to captain a sloop called the Union on a fur trading venture to the Northwest. Boyd had a successful time, it would seem, and may have been the first to sail a sloop around the world. No ship that small had ever accomplished that before. Boyd spent most of his life as a ship captain. He quit sailing when he turned 40 and focused on the merchant side of things. Boyd would live and work in Boston until he died March 8, 1829, at the age of 54. Chief Koya, the leader of the Haida people, who was humiliated by Kendrick, eventually regained his honor in 1794 when he led the capture of three ships. Beyond that, we know very little of the remainder of Koya's life. Up next we have Chief McQuinna, who was a pivotal character during the Northwest fur trade. He was amongst the first of the powerful Native American chiefs on Vancouver Island to make contact with European explorers. He solidified his power base in Nootka Sound 
by centralizing fur trading operations. He also showed a posture of acceptance and welcome to foreign people. McQuinnell would remain in the spotlight throughout the Pacific sea otter trade, but would fade from written history at its end. Unfortunately, most of what we know about McQuinna came from European and American writers. We don't have much in the way of first-hand Nutkin accounts. Chief McQuinna's date of death is unknown, but undoubtedly, he was a notable man. Our third chief is Chief Wiccanish, who remained one of the more powerful and prominent chiefs of Vancouver Island. Sources are scarce on him as well, but it seems that he did not lose power or influence despite Gray's destruction of Opitsat. It is possible that Chief Wiccanish died during the Battle of Woody Point on July 16, 1811. However, that may be a story for another time. Now, on to our two captains and the main characters of these expeditions. First, let us start with Kendrick. We had last left him after he rendezvoused with Gray and the Columbia. Kendrick was going to return to China to sell the furs he had procured and then return home to Boston. But... If you thought Kendrick would do something so straightforward, you would be mistaken. Kendrick made it to China and once again failed to make any sort of profit from the sea otter trade. However, this is probably because after selling his furs, he spent the next 11 months living in Canton. He rented out a space befitting a captain and enjoyed all China had to offer. He drafted a letter to Joseph Burrell where he explained his situation to his creditor. Essentially, he wrote that he had amassed too much debt due to his failures to make profit from selling furs. He mentioned to Burrell that he had arranged some land purchases that he thought could be extremely valuable. He failed to mention that these land purchases were in his name only, though. In this letter, he also offered to buy Lady Washington from Burrell when all was said and done. With what money he planned on doing that, I haven't the foggiest idea and something tells me Kendrick didn't either. He closed out the letter, promising that he would leave Canton and make one last attempt to trade for furs in the Northwest. He said he would be back to China in November of 1793, after which he would finally return home to Boston. I would be fascinated to learn how Burrell reacted to this letter. I can only imagine him reading it in his office, his jaw hanging open, and an expression of disbelief on his face. Kendrick's first attempt to leave China was disastrous. He and the Lady Washington were caught in a typhoon, and the ship was significantly damaged. Kendrick had to return to China to conduct expensive repairs, which only sank him deeper into debt. While waiting for his ship to be repaired, Kendrick had another one of his dreams of grandeur. He decided that he would draft a letter to Thomas Jefferson, who at the time was serving as the Secretary of State in George Washington's cabinet. Kendrick explained to Jefferson his land purchases and the value of the Northwest as a potential territory. As fate would have it, Thomas Jefferson wound up paving the way for a massive expansion of the United States that would eventually include the Pacific Northwest. If Kendrick's letter had any influence on Jefferson, we may never know, but it is nonetheless interesting. Kendrick eventually did make it back to the Northwest, where he began trading once more. He was reunited with his son, John Kendrick Jr., who had left to sail for the Spanish crown some years back. Father and son were reunited September 11th of 1794. 
It was the last time the two would ever meet. Kendrick stopped in Hawaii before sailing back to China, as most fur traders did. The British had taken an interest in Hawaii and were even meddling with the local politics at the time. Kendrick had asked the local British ships to exchange salutes on December 12th of 1794. Kendrick sure loved his salutes and patriotic symbolism. He had the U.S. flag hoisted and fired off the first salute. One of the ships, the Jackal, commanded by a Captain Brown, returned the salutes. The plan was to fire three unloaded cannons. The gunner discovered that the third cannon was empty but not primed, so he moved to the fourth cannon. The fourth cannon, however, was primed and loaded with grape shot. The fourth cannon was fired, unleashing a deadly spray of iron at the Lady Washington. Much of Lady Washington's crew was severely injured, and Captain John Kendrick was struck in the head and killed instantly. The event was deemed an accident. John Kendrick died at the age of 54 in Honolulu Harbor. Kendrick was a fascinating and controversial character. He was full of charisma and liked by almost everyone he met. Even John Hoskins, who despised Robert Gray, gravitated towards Kendrick. The irony, of course, is that Hoskins despised Gray because he thought he was stealing Joseph Burrell's money. In reality, Kendrick lost and misappropriated more of Burrell's funds than Gray ever could have possibly done. Kendrick is irritating at times, but you kind of want to root for the guy. He was obviously liked and respected by his crew, who stuck by him throughout all his journeys and adventures. However, Kendrick was lackluster. He seemed to have trouble making decisions of any kind, and indecisiveness is never a trait you want someone in charge to have. His endless daydreaming replaced any action that he potentially could have taken. He was content to sit in Nootka Sound in a makeshift fort while Gray did all the work. He dreamt of land grants and a partnership with the Secretary of State rather than focusing on the task at hand. Let's not forget that he repeatedly attempted to make profits in China and only sank deeper into debt rather than return to Boston and admit defeat. Who knows, if he hadn't died at Hawaii, he may have returned to China only to go back to the Northwest once more. All in all, I don't think Kendrick was necessarily a bad guy. His treatment of Koya was a black mark on his record to be sure, but Kendrick seemed to be someone who was too much of a dreamer and he couldn't shake his delusions. Kendrick was caught in a perpetual wheel where he dreamt of a vast fortune for him and his descendants, a dream that was honestly unrealistic, and one that came up short in the end. Unfortunately for him, his pursuit of fame and fortune put him at the time and place of his death. Lastly, we will address Robert Gray. As I said at the start of this series on the Columbia, Gray and Kendrick couldn't have been more different from one another. In a lot of ways, they were opposites. But let's see to the rest of Gray's story before we begin to analyze his character. When Gray returned to Boston the second time, he was 38 years old. Still single upon his return, he married a woman named Martha Atkins. The couple had four children, and he named his eldest son Robert Donquadra Gray, as tribute to the Spanish captain who helped him at Nootka Sound. Gray continued sailing as a profession 
and served on privateer vessels throughout the 1790s and during the Quasi-War. In 1793, his ship was captured by French privateers off the coast of South America. Gray would eventually be returned home after the ordeal. After 1800, Gray fades into obscurity. His wife records that he died in 1806 at the age of 51. Martha notes that Robert Gray left behind four children and little property. We can assume this means that Robert Gray never amassed much wealth to be spoken about. Gray's obscurity is curious. Despite his long voyages, exploration, and his biggest achievement of successfully navigating the Columbia River bars, Gray was not well known. He never published anything regarding his voyages, which could have earned him a decent salary. His sailing of the Columbia would not be considered important until the United States used it as a justification to claim the Oregon Territory nearly 40 years after Gray's death. Perhaps Gray didn't think anything he did was significant enough to publish, or perhaps he had no desire to be in the limelight. Whatever the reason, there is a lot of missing information about this significant American figure. Today, many schools, landmarks, and geographic areas in the Pacific Northwest bear his name. Unfortunately, most of what we know about Gray comes to us secondhand. He published nothing himself, and there is not much of his writings left. As I've said, Gray was nothing like Kendrick. He was impatient and reserved, but a man of action. Gray was constantly on the move and seemed to dislike any sort of downtime. He was concerned with the task at hand and rarely thought long about what to do next. Gray also seemed to have a temper. On the second voyage especially, we see Gray lose his cool when faced with threats or dissent, such as in Attu's case when he tried to desert. Gray was likely not the best of the fur traders when we look at the numbers, and his reckless sailing could have killed everyone aboard the Columbia multiple times. Much more about Gray's character I can hardly attest to given what I know. I think my summary of him is about as accurate as we can get. Until the day when someone hopefully discovers a long-lost journal of his and we can hear everything directly from him. So concludes the voyage of the Columbia. The first American to circumnavigate the globe, and the first non-native to navigate the Columbia sandbars. It has been a fun story, and I hope you've liked it. If you are enjoying the program, and you would like to hear episodes more often, please consider donating to the show. Donations would go towards growing the podcast so that I can produce longer episodes more often. You can find a donate button at historypnwpodcast.podbean.com. That is P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Or you can check the show notes where I have a link to my donor page as well. Anything helps, and even as little as $1 a month can help pay for the cost of my hosting platform and help me pay for advertising so that I can reach more people interested in history. Know the show is a labor of love, and I will continue to make it, even if it might not be at the pace that some of you wish, or even if no one is listening. If you have questions about the show, you can email me at history.pnw.podcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you for listening, and I will see you next time. <laughs>